Welcome to All Together Now. This is Eleanor LeCane. The recent United Nations report sounded the alarm that global warming is happening faster than expected, and the problem comes from human activity. The window for preventing severe damage is rapidly closing. We know we need to change the way we do things, like shift from fossil fuels to a clean, green economy, but we also know that big oil and other extractive industries have a lot of money and power. Will we be able to make the needed changes fast enough? What will it take to stop big oil and other corporations from the extraction and pollution that is destroying our planet? Our guests today have an answer to that vital question. Robin Broad and John Kavanaugh work closely with a group of villagers in El Salvador, building national and international support to protect water and land, and they won the first ever national ban on all mining. John and Robin just published a book about this inspirational story of how David beat Goliath and saved the water and land for future generations. Their book is titled The Water Defenders, How Ordinary People Saved a Country from Corporate Greed. The lessons from their experience can guide others in the U.S. and around the world working to protect the land, water, and air on which our very life depends. Robin Broad and John Kavanaugh are a husband and wife team deeply involved in the campaign to pass the first ever mining ban. Robin is an expert in international development and won a Guggenheim Fellowship for her work on this project and two previous MacArthur Fellowships. She is currently a professor at American University. John Cavana has been a longtime director of the Institute for Policy Studies that collaborates with dynamic social movements to turn ideas into action for peace, justice, and the environment. I've known them both for decades and I'm proud to call them friends. Robin and John, welcome to All Together Now. Thank you, Eleanor. It's a it's a pleasure and an honor to be here and to call you a friend. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, and Eleanor, Eleanor goes back all the way to the 1970s with my wonderful Institute for Policy Studies. So thank you for all your work on food and everything else over all those decades, Eleanor. Right. Thank you, John. Appreciate that. Well, I'm excited to talk with you today. I'm glad I have a platform to help more people know about your really important and exciting work. And uh, it's so nice to have a positive victory to celebrate. <laughs> so um, for people who haven't yet read the book, and by the way, I consider this book is the foundation for a movie. I can't wait to see the movie. <laughs> it would, you know, it's got everything. It's got assassinations. It's got bribery and corruption. <laughs> it's got the secret court organized by the World Bank. Uh, and it's got the heroism of ordinary people uh, uh, like you and the people on the ground in El Salvador doing amazing, courageous and strategic heroic work. So uh, for our listeners who haven't yet had the pleasure of reading your book, and I hope everybody reads The Water Defenders, could you just give a very brief summary like the story headline of what is this about? Yes. So at its core, this is a story about people in northern El Salvador who 20 years ago, as they put it, white men in suits come in. These are mining executives who know that there's a lot of gold underneath the ground, <clears throat> like corporations going into communities everywhere. The corporations promise jobs. They promise prosperity. And like communities around the world, their initial reaction is wanting to believe it. But this is a story of the incredible smarts of these people to learn really what mining would do to their rivers and their land. And as they learned how they built support in their community and then how they expanded their goals from just kicking out the company to making El Salvador the first country in the world, 
to ban gold mining and how they built the national coalitions to do that. And then when the mining companies sued them in Washington, how they realized they needed an international campaign and knew who to go to and what to ask and pulled in, at the, by the end, tens of thousands of people around the world in a major fight to both save their rivers, but also to take on corporate power. And you're right, Eleanor, it's a, it's a wonderful, hopeful story. And, and if, if poor people in a poor country can do this, imagine what we all can. But Robin and I decided we really wanted to write in a, in a book because we felt that it was full of lessons for other fights. Exactly. And I want to get to those lessons. In fact, I want most of this conversation to be about your lessons. Uh, and maybe as a lead into that, we can address, you know, this question. I and mean, all three of us really have had kind of an international perspective coming out of college and uh, early on in, in our lives and our work. Um, for our listeners who may wonder, why should someone in the United States care what happened in El Salvador? What would you say to them? I think we, I would say a couple things. First of all, let me talk about what, how we got involved in this, because we actually, that's partially answering your question, I hope, because yes. we weren't, we didn't plan out to do work with a community in northern El Salvador. We are the first to say we are not experts on El Salvador. Um, we got involved in this. Well, some of your listeners might say it was serendipity. Some will say it was fate. We'll let them believe what, whatever they want. But John's organization, the Institute for Policy Studies, selects, selected a national network of Salvadoran water defenders to win the Institute's prestigious annual human rights award in 2009. The Institute tries to select a little known group doing amazing work and give them a global platform. Um, I know you've been at this award ceremony, Barbara, uh, Eleanor, and, and I'm sure others in your audience. So the, the award was to honor the Coalition of Water Defenders, La Mesa or the Roundtable, who were trying to keep mining out of El Salvador. Five water defenders were scheduled to come to Washington, D.C. in 2009. Um, but, and I'm getting goosebumps as I say this, but just months before the award ceremony, we received the shocking news that one of the five, a teacher and cultural worker, Marcelo Rivera, had been disappeared and then brutally assassinated. His body was found, his badly tortured body was found in the bottom of a deep, dry well. We were horrified. But the water defenders still insisted on coming. In fact, it, it became even more important to them. So five of them came to Washington, D.C. in October 2009. And in Marcelo's place came his younger brother and best friend, Miguel. After the ceremony, Miguel respectfully but firmly asked for our help. The mining corporation had initiated a legal case, an arbitration case, against the government of El Salvador in a secret tribunal in the World Bank Group, just blocks from where we were talking with Miguel. The water defenders knew little about this venue. They could not figure out why the fate of their hometowns, their communities, was going to be decided in a venue, a room in Washington, D.C. that they couldn't even get, get into. Um, and they knew that John and I and our, our people we knew had some expertise on the World Bank. Mm -hmm. So they asked for our help. What began on that night in October 9, October 2009, which I think we did exactly what I think you would have done and many of your listeners would do. We said, yes, sure, we'll help you. We expected to do a day or two of research, of course, pro bono. Um, and that turned into an evening of some of the most rewarding work of our lives. And along the way, what we realized was that this wasn't just about El Salvador. What was about El Salvador was in the domain of that national coalition, La Mesa, but it was a global corporation, a Canadian and then an Australian corporation that was suing El Salvador to try to mine there. And that arbitration venue was in Washington, D.C. 
So it, this wasn't a matter of solidarity with the people of El Salvador. This was a strong realization that this was our fight, too. Exactly right. Uh, there's a great quote by a Native American uh, who said something to the effect, if you want to come help save me, go away. If you want to join with me in our joint struggle, yeah. let's go shoulder to shoulder. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I think that's exactly what the two of you did with uh, your friends and colleagues in El Salvador. And um this is kind of a global struggle for survival, and it's playing out in communities all around the country and around the world. Um, you know, we saw at Standing Rock, the battle over the uh, the pipeline trying to come through the Native American waterways there. Another victory, by the way, that uh, people organized and resisted and <laughs> beat the multi-billion dollar corporation trying to put the pipeline under the waterways. So, uh this battle is happening in communities all around the world. So um, I, I totally agree with you. This is, it's our struggle together. And I, it's a very important, it's really a life and death struggle. And, and being able to win these battles means we can protect and defend our water, our air, our land. So we, we get to, to live happily and have future generations instead of the incredible toxicity. Um, so the fact that you took on this big corporations and you won and you won in an arena that almost nobody knows exists. So um, I see your uh, victory in two different arenas. One arena is, as you mentioned, in the World Bank Secret Court, which we want to talk about so our listeners will understand what that's all about. And the second arena was passing this landmark national legislation to ban all mining nationally, not just gold mine, all mining nationally in El Salvador, which is now being picked up in other places. So let's talk about each of those and the strategies that you use to win and some of the lessons you've learned that other people could take away. So first, the secret court, it just does. I mean, you talked about the woman in El Salvador saying, how is it that the secret court in Washington, D.C. and the World Bank is going to determine the fate of our village in El Salvador? Excellent question. What's the answer? Well, let me let me start with this. Um, Many people, I think, who are listening, Eleanor, are aware of some of the fights that were huge in this country and around the world in the 1980s and 90s against what people called corporate globalization, against the World Bank and IMF and so on. And those protests and those fights culminating in the big protests at the World Trade Organization in Seattle in 1999, they were really about the fact that large corporations in the 1970s and 80s got so big that they went global. They were Their production lines went global. They were global. And with that, they got more power over workers, communities, and the environment. They could, in fact, play people and countries off against each other. They would say to workers in the U.S., take a pay cut because we can do this work in Mexico or in Central America. At that moment, they started writing rules that were in their favor. And, and over this period, one of them was to say, okay, when governments take actions against us around the world, we want to place a safe place where we can bring these cases. We don't want to go to the local courts in those countries. So it was actually in the 1960s that this secret tribunal, it's called the International Center for Settlement of Investment Disputes, it was set up. It was part, it made part of the World Bank group. Countries in Latin America in the mid-60s said, we don't want this. You, you're, you are violating our sovereignty and our, and our local and national courts. And they all voted against it. Famous vote in 1964, it's referred to as the Tokyo No. All of Latin America, the Philippines, Iraq voted against this. But in these institutions, the rich countries have the majority of votes. They created it. The trade agreements that came in the 80s and 90s gave it even more power. And 
in it, so it's this, think of this, corporations can sue governments, but governments and communities can't sue corporations, nor can you bring in issues, environmental issues and other key human rights issues. It's a very narrow set of issues. The corporation says, you've interrupted our future profits. And what they were mad about in El Salvador was, as movements learn more about the negative impacts of mining, they got the government to put just a pause on new mining licenses. And these companies struck back with lawsuits. Um, Robin uh, often points out that it's it's the law in the lawsuits you can sue for future profits foregone. So they'd spent about sixty million dollars in El Salvador. They said we think we're going to make three hundred million. They sued for three hundred million. This this is absurd. It's as people hear about this, they wonder how could this exist. And truly, hopefully, five to ten years from now, it won't exist as more people learn about it. Um, you, uh, you, Eleanor, you mentioned the fights against the pipelines in this country. Joe Biden came in. He canceled, as Obama had done, um, this Trans-Canada pipeline. And just a couple months ago, the big Canadian company announced it's going to sue the United States for $15 billion for canceling this pipeline. So this is going to become a much bigger issue in the United States. But it is absurd. I wouldn't even call it a court because in court you have certain rules this is, a, we called it in our protests outside the World Bank, a kangaroo court because of the rig rules in favor of, of corporate. Right. I want to hear more about the kangaroo court. I just want to underscore, this is such a startling and bizarre concept. I want to, our listeners to know, yes, you did hear John say companies can sue and win on what they think their future profits might have been, whether 300 billion, 15 billion, we would have made this money, except you didn't give us the permit, you didn't let us build the pipeline. It's like, what kind of bizarre world is that? I mean, you can sue on potential future profits and actually win. Now, this very vital question with billions of dollars at stake is being decided in this secret court at the World Bank in Washington, D.C., and that's what John is describing now. Go ahead. Tell us about this kangaroo. Well, actually, let, let me just let me add in. Let me jump in to, yeah. to follow up with you, because like you and I hope like your listeners, when John and I first heard about this, we actually thought we must have heard something wrong. <laughs> right. Because especially in the case in El Salvador. So in the El Salvador case, this particular El Salvador case, the company that sued was a Canadian gold mining company called Pacific Rim. It was then, just so we get all these characters right, it was then eaten up, bought out by a Canadian-Australian company called Oceana Gold. What, when Pacific Rim sued, it did not yet have permission to mine by the Salvadoran government. It didn't have a concession. It didn't have a mining permit. It had not yet submitted an environmental impact assessment that the government accepted. So it shouldn't have had a right, even under these bizarre rules, mm -hmm. the case should have been thrown out rather than linger on for seven years. But the corporations and their expensive lawyers are so sure that they're going to win in this venue, this tribunal, that they ignore these little details. <laughs> so the fact that this company didn't have the right to win, didn't make it, to mine, didn't make any difference. The company had the right to explore. But under mining laws, most countries around the world, you first get the right to explore. And then if you find gold or silver and you want to mine, you have to apply for another license. So this co company sues El Salvador after John's, as John said, it didn't put in much time or investment. They were so sure that they would get the license. Um, right around the time that Marcelo was murdered, they realized that this was going to be harder work than they ever imagined. And so they sued El Salvador, not for whatever they invested, which was very little, but for this, sorry to say this, 
somewhat made up figure as far as we can tell. How do you calculate profit, future profits for gold, right? You have to get the price of gold. You have to know how, exactly how much gold you're gonna, you're, you're going to get. But the way the companies and their lawyers see it and the way this venue works, the corporations almost always win. They win either by getting to the end of the the judicials, if we, proceedings, if we're going to call them judicial proceedings. One of one of the people we interviews, we interview, who's a a lawyer who argues in this arbitration venue, calls it the wild wild west of proceedings. There aren't really rules, but but the companies are hoping that they won't even have to wait till the end that merely by suing the country, the government, the government will either say, oh my gosh, we can't, we can't go through this because we know we're going to lose, so come on in and mine. Or, as is often the case, the, the government would say, okay, we can't go through this, so you've sued for $300 million, will you accept $200 million? So they typically win. When John and I at Miguel's bequest jumped into this. We actually, and this is, I think, really important to say um, in terms of when you jump into doing something because it's right, because it's the right thing to do. We had no, not a clue that El Salvador, never mind the the water defenders on the ground, could win. Um, We never said that. Not only did we never say it to the water defenders, we never said it to each other. (laughs) (laughs) we just it was the right thing to do and we were um it's an it it, part of why we we wrote this in book form after the victories is because we felt it was so important to share the hope and to to share the story but also to share the reality that that the lesson of this is not that you can win in exit in this in this tribunal the lesson is how hard it is to win mm-hmm. but therefore the solution is to be get to get rid of this tribunal not to try and replicate what el salvador did yeah that well i think you want both of those right as long as it exists you want to be able to win but we know the deck is stacked in favor of the corporations because they're the ones setting the rules with these international trade agreements so and most of us don't even know this tribunal exists and has this incredible power nationally. So uh, I do want to do a quick tip of the hat. Um, and I think, John, you were starting to go down this track. Like, how did you beat them yep. at their own game in the secret tribunal? And yes, we want to spread the word that it exists and eliminate this whole idea that this secret world court can decide these massive decisions without any uh, input from the people or even with the local governments there. So how did you win? Yeah, well, so a couple things. And and a lot of these lessons do come back to a basic thing in human life, which is building good relationships. So in this case, El Salvador hired a lawyer who who would have been an unlikely ally for us. He came out of a conservative family. He'd been in the military, um, went to West Point. But then he became a lawyer. And through mutual friends, we were able to meet this guy. His name is Luis Parada. And I must say, the fact that he came to trust us, we came to trust him. He did meet then the water defenders, and we said good things about him. They would not have initially, I think, trusted him. The coordination uh, from both sides helped him build a stronger case. So that was one thing. Secondly, this court, it has dozens of cases every year, most of them completely off the radar screen. They don't get much press attention. We decided that we would do, we would build as big a coalition as we could. We, we were, we, as someone said to us, you need muscle. Now, what they meant by that is we needed organization that had, organizations that had clout. So we put together a coalition of groups uh, with the Institute for Policy Studies and a group called Mining Watch Canada at the core. But we got labor unions. We got environmental groups. We are able to get labor unions. That's odd in a mining case because mining uh, miners around the world are represented by unions. 
mining had been interrupted in El Salvador by the Civil War. It had not much come back. And the unions there, once they heard about the environmental damage from mining, said, we're fine uh, going, you know, supporting the water defenders. And we were able to get the International Trade Union uh, Confederation, which has 180 million members around the world, to support this. Big environmental groups like Friends of the Earth and the Sierra Club, women's organizations, solidarity groups. There's a huge Salvadoran diaspora in the United States and Canada and Australia. They came to to our protest, and we started doing leafleting and protesting outside the World Bank. And it's right, there's a big building in the middle of Washington that 10,000 people pour into every morning between eight and nine. The World Bank it's supposed to help fight poverty. It does very little of that, unfortunately. But a lot of the people coming in and taking our leaflets didn't even know this thing existed. That's how, how secretive it is. And when the tribunal was holding hearings on this case, we did big protests outside. We got the Teamsters Union have this big, beautiful fat cat. And we we just made a lot of noise. We were heard. We later heard that the tribunalists, there's three of them in these cases, they were they were upset. They were upset. We were calling the court a, court, a kangaroo court. I think the scrutiny on it made them be much more careful in, in the way they they um, made their judgment in this case. They did not want to lead into our larger story that this is a kangaroo court. So the pressure, the pressure did help. Um, the fact that Luis knew a lot of what was going on the ground helped. And all of it just made it a, a really, really strong case. And oh, and finally, one thing. At the end, the company did do what Robin said they always try to do. It did try to buy off some government officials. It did try to offer a deal. Again, having our contacts with the lawyer, Luis, we were able to find out this was going on, get that information to others in the government who did not want mining, that sort of embarrassed the people who were making the deal. But you can see how easy it is in the last stage for corporations to make deals with governments. So having these strong connections, Robin and I became good friends with the environment minister in El Salvador, as did others of our international allies. She played a key role at the end, and the government refused to make a deal. And then the tribunal ruled unanimously, all three, uh, against the mining company. And it was like, oh, my God, we we were fighting it, as Robin said, to turn it into a poster child of everything that was wrong. I mean, on one level, it disproved our case. <laughs> it's a kangaroo court, a unanimous decision against against the mining company. But but anyway, that only happens in about a third of the cases. I mean, the unanimous thing almost never happens. Mm-hmm. And it, so it was both a poster child and oh my God, the mining company loses. We Final point here, we carefully never said El Salvador won. Because here, this country was dragged through seven years of these proceedings. It spent $13 million on it. It couldn't, it had to be very careful about what regulations it passed while the legal proceedings were going on. So countries don't win in this court, but thank goodness in this case, the corporation lost. Let me jump yeah, in with so that. Let me talk just a couple of quick things. First of all, all three of us are using the term we, and I just want to make it clear that we is not just John and me. It's, we, were, we were part of this, but um, when we're using the word we, we're talking about um, for international allies, the global group, uh, uh, dozens of people, and it's, it's alliance with La Mesa, the round table, in El Salvador. So we is very, very inclusive. The second thing I want to say is in some ways, well, it was, it was again, fate or serendipity. It was, this is a very technical thing, this court. We're trying to explain it and we try and explain it in the book in ways that, that are understandable because that's part of what we do as, as writers and part of what we did in this case. But it was very fortunate that it was a case that could be turned into a soundbite. And the soundbite was water, not gold. <laughs> water is life. So one could get into the much more technical details with the, an audience that wanted it. But at a very basic level, the idea that a tribunal in Washington, D.C. should take their view, should take precedence over a government view 
of listening to its people and choosing water over gold, that's just outrageous. Um, and there are a number of funny things that that funny, they weren't necessarily funny at the time they were happening, but that, that we retell in the book. And as John said, one of them was this kangaroo court. We and others came up with the idea kangaroo court. We made a website called kangaroocourt.whatever. Um, we weren't doing this for the tribunalists. We were doing this to try and reach out to a broader audience to get them to care about this tribunal rather than call it the International Center for Settlement of Investment Disputes is bad, dot whatever. Um, but it's it tribunal out, is better. Right. <laughs> the, the, uh, it turned out that that at least and it turns out that the panel, the tribunalists, were actually insulted at being called a kangaroo court. And so they, oddly enough, decided to look somewhat at the facts of this case. Well, I think the fact that you call them a kangaroo court, they were offended professionally and wanted to prove they weren't. And uh, they knew the eyes were on them. And that's what I find so impressive about your work. First of all, hats off to you for sharing the credit, but what a beautiful model of the two of you uh, spearheading the research into this secret tribunal and spearheading the formation of a strong coalition of international allies and taking your lead from the people on the ground in El Salvador in the villages who are doing the work to try and stop the mining on the ground and deal with their national legislation around mining. So it's a it's just such a beautiful model. And, uh, you know, they say sunshine is the best disinfectant. I mean, the fact that you had hundreds of people eyes on what was happening, they're like, oh, we better do the right thing in this case, because <laughs> yeah. in this case, people are really watching. And your messaging, I thought, was brilliant. I mean, you mentioned some of it there, water, not gold, uh, agua la vida, water is life. I, I think those messages resonate deeply, and it it is actually calling forth what I see as kind of the basic struggle here is over kind of a definition of progress. Like the mining company comes in and says, Hey, good news. You have gold on your land. We can mine it. We'll give you money. You'll get jobs. This is going to be fabulous. We'll money into your communities for schools and this and that. And they're like paying people off with this little seashell kind of stuff, <laughs> extracting billions of dollars of wealth and leaving this colossal mess in, in their wake. But as long when people have the sense of, oh, this is progress, this is jobs, this is money, that's a very alluring message that the extractive companies, the mining companies, and so fossil fuel companies all use. But you, with your messaging, help to show none of that wealth matters when you've destroyed the water and the land. And, and as it turns out, the wasn't that many jobs that it would create anyway. And like 98% of the wealth is going to be taken out of the country. Now, people still talk about El Salvador as a poor country. It's like, hey, they've had this incredible, the entire continent of Africa, by the way, which John knows I spent a year out there. They call, you know, the poor continent of Africa. I mean, diamonds, gold, incredible wealth. It's just all been extracted out. So the local people, the local governments don't get the wealth. The wealth has gone to De Beers, the great diamond company or the fossil fuel companies getting the oil out of Nigeria. So uh, but how do you see that you were in the middle of the greatest struggle, I think, of our time is this definition of progress? And progress, is it gold and wealth in that sense? Or is progress healthy land, healthy water? What would be your reflections on the nature of our changing definition of progress, given your experience? Well, for, first of all, the, I think the uh, 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 first thing to stress is that that messaging, that definition of progress came from the people on the ground. And that for those of us who work on who 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 think development should be something 
that is not only benefits the majority of the, the world's people who are indeed the marginalized and dispossessed, but should be defined by them. Um, this, this case is just a perfect example of that. So it was people like Marcelo and Miguel and their, their friend and co-worker Vidalina Morales, who you will meet in the book, who when mining mine companies announced they were coming in, first, as Vidalina told us, first, these people, they were excited because they thought they could get jobs. But it's a very poor area of El Salvador. And then they were smart enough as, as is typically the case, to do more research. And what they discovered when they went over the big Lempa River to Honduras, which is just north of them, and also went to old mining sites within El Salvador, what they discovered was that mining brought not just social conflict, but, but environmental poisoning, and we can talk about that more as you mm -hmm. want, um, later, but also didn't bring the economic problem, promises that the jobs were mostly in the construction. Um, it wasn't. And after that, the best jobs went to what local people call the white men in suits. Um, and so they began by their they messaged that they're they were the water defenders that. And when we, we initially met them in 2009, and then we, starting in 2011, we made eight trips there, and they made many trips here. Um, we would laugh because sometimes we would make a mistake and call them anti-mining, and they would say to us, we're not anti-mining, we're pro-water. And so that was their reality. Mm -hmm. um, but what was so interesting then, and what, what your question gets to, is the mining companies come in, and they, they have a very different definition of progress. And we're able to show this in the book because we were fortunate enough to get, thanks to the lawsuit and other legal means, we were able to get a trove of internal company documents, which shows what they were thinking about progress. And in their view, these were, quote unquote, ignorant peasants with big hats who couldn't possibly be against mining. There's a Canadian Broadcasting Corporation interview with the woman who's the fifth generation head of this company. And she says something like, and I'm somewhat paraphrasing here, these people have to be for mining. I mean, they're poor people, they're poor corn and bean farmers. They have to be for mining. And if they are against mining, it's because rogue NGOs are telling them lies. So it's, it's, it's these two contrasting views of progress that end up being part of the problem. I mean, am I naive enough to think we're ever going to get the same view of, view of progress? Probably not. But it's um, as much as the water defenders tried to explain that their concerns were, they wanted to be able to continue to live as well as they currently live, and like parents everywhere, they wanted their children not only to have the opportunity to be corn and, and bean farmers, but they wanted their children to have the chance to have a better life. And the mining companies just couldn't understand that. Well, and the mining companies think a better life is jobs and money from the gold right. mining, not continuing with healthy water and farming <laughs> and food. John, did you want to have a reflection on progress? One thing, because it's interesting, Eleanor, because you've raised this in a, in a much bigger frame um, about how corporate, big corporations view the world. One thing I became very aware of is these mining companies, I think, felt they had one other thing um, going for them in their argument about progress, which is you know, all of you look at everything around you that surrounds you as you sit here listening to this radio. I mean, if you're in a car, you're surrounded by all the metals that are in the car, computers, phones. I think they simply felt obviously progress and the lives you all want to live are full of minerals. So come on. Um, this is necessary. It's interesting. I feel there's been a shift on you mentioned oil and gas companies, which we you know, we're 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 right now 
hopefully the world is going through a massive shift from oil and gas to clean energy and energy efficiency and so on. I think people, most people can, yeah, I know, fingers crossed, but I think most people now can imagine a future without oil and gas. There, There is, and I mean, this is an exciting thing about this year, the U.S. government's about to pass a giant uh, budget plan that will massively shift incentives away from fossil fuels to clean energy and energy efficiency. I think people can imagine that. Most people cannot imagine a future without metals. So I think right. part of the power of the mining companies is that. And it's, it's a big challenge for all of us. By the way, we n- neither the water defenders nor we said, imagine a world without minerals. We, we know that metals are key to all sorts of things. Gold is a little different. Only 10% of gold goes into industrial uses and things like your phone. It is in your phone. It's, it's half of it is jewelry and, and it's used as a repository of, of, of wealth. Um, we could do away with that. And I actually think the next generations will. And it's already starting in India, China, younger people who, who buy gold for weddings. As consciousness of this grows, they're turning they're turning to other things. So we can maybe get rid of most gold, but most other stuff we can't. And it's going to take a massive shift in thinking. By the end of this, Robin and I concluded that if you want to keep water safe around the world, you'd have to eliminate about at least half of the mines. You can't do it in indigenous areas and areas of rich biodiversity. In El Salvador, there's earthquakes and typhoons. You can't do it there. Um, And so how do we do that? It would require massively rethinking the recycling of metals. Now, again, most people think about recycling their paper and their plastic. Um, But on on a huge scale, if we think of being 10 years from now at a point where every refrigerator, factories and so on are the metal in them is recycled, it would require the same sort of huge government investment in shifting the incentives. Right now, about 30% of metals are recycled. Um, If you got it up to 90%, you could meet the goal of cutting out half of the mining. And this is something that most people aren't thinking about yet. So we, we are deeply inspired by the climate movements that have been able to help people imagine a world without oil and gas. And the movements of the future are going to make need to make a similar mind shift around the way we think about minerals. To the great credit of the people in El Salvador, though, by framing it around water, which everybody needs, even conservative business people. I mean, think in a country like that, agribusiness needs water. Tourism country, uh, companies need water. So they, by framing it that way, were able to neutralize some of the normal business opposition and and remind everybody. I mean, I think the key thing about water is we all die <laughs> if we don't have it for three or four days. I mean, it's pretty quick. Um, you can live without food for whatever, 40 days. But water, three to four days, you're dead. And that basic reality made the messaging resonate. And And just finally, I want to say, as Robin said, they taught this to us. I never thought about this much, but most progressive campaigns are against something. And I think it is one of our problems. This is why it is. This was one of the bigger lessons for us. Mm -hmm. And they just kept saying, you know, they bring us to their organic farms. They bring us to the river. They just until we stop saying anti-mining. And in the end, we didn't call international allies, international allies against mining. We called it international allies in support of of this national roundtable in El Salvador. And it I totally changed the way we think about that. And I urge everybody listening to think about the campaign you're doing. If it's against Walmart or against Amazon or whatever, think of the way you could pose that that reminds people of the positive values that we all unite around. Right. And those campaigns can be more pro-worker, pro-worker safety or, right. uh, you know, all of that. Um Well, you've raised so many important points in what you're talking about. First of all, I just want to say I myself uh, knew really next to nothing about the damage caused by mining gold until I read your book. And went, oh, my God, (laughs) they use cyanide to get the gold off of the rock. It's like I had no idea. And of course, it leaves this disgusting, toxic stew in its wake. And you, you talk about the field trip that the people in El Salvador took to Honduras to look at a similar mine that this company had in another country. And they saw what had happened to the mountain 
you know, like decapitated and then all the water and the toxic stew and the people getting sick from it. It's like, I had no idea if I knew that gold was that toxic and that dangerous for the people who lived in those areas. Yeah, I would have stopped buying gold. Not that I buy much gold, but <laughs> it just would. My whole consciousness about gold shifted as soon as I learned how toxic and dangerous it is to mine. So, thank you for that. I mean, if nothing else comes out of it, that's a real contribution. Eleanor, Eleanor, that's one of the the reactions we get from uh, a lot of readers, and I think um, John and I are surprised by it. But it's a useful <laughs> reminder to us because. We undoubtedly didn't really know enough about that. I have a background in ecology, so I knew it somewhat. But just to just to re- reiterate briefly, so in order to get gold out of rocks, I, some of your listeners may have this view of the Canadian, the the Californian gold rush, right? right. You go to California with the mining can. You stand in a ribble, you take your your whatever it is, your pan. Your, <laughs> your pan, and you put some water in it, and you have little chunks of gold. That's not what industrial mining is today. What industrial mining is today is using huge quantities of water in order to find minuscule amounts of gold in every ton, ton of rock. And for more than 100 years now, industrial mining has separated the gold from the rock using cyanide. Lots of mining companies will tell you they don't use cyanide. Don't believe that. I mean, look at what they use, and they're using something that in the bottom line is cyanide. They're just using a a different name. In addition, if if that weren't enough, when, as, as we, as I put it, when the gods of gold played a joke on human beings and put the gold in the rock, they also, in about 50% of the places where gold is around the world, put uh, some arsenic in there too. So when industrial mining co- happens and the companies use cyanide to separate the gold from the rock, arsenic also comes up. Um, anyone who's what we you know go go watch arsenic and a lace or something. <laughs> we know about cyanide and and, and how de- how poisonous it is. The same is true for arsenic. The gold companies here, the mining companies, are very clever here. They say things like, "We don't use arsenic." It's absolutely true that they don't use arsenic. They use cyanide, but they release the arsenic. Mm-hmm. So you have essentially toxic waste dumps that are large water-filled pits with the rock, with the cyanide, with the arsenic. Um, And again, the mining companies say this will last forever. This, this, This enclosure will last forever. And it doesn't. At a certain point, it leaks. And there are examples of that all over the world. Um, And so all of this is... And it, 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 all of this is why we need science. We don't need fancy science. The, the water defenders on the ground in El Salvador learned all this. They became what one might call citizen scientists. They educated their government on this. Um, but, but we need to understand that so we can, this, it's, uh, because this, like many issues, is why we can't just sit around a table and come up with a compromise. That is, by the way, what the mining companies offered at the end as they got desperate as the the court case was coming to a close, they had this ludicrous suggestion um, that they shared with supportive top government officials. They said, let's divide El Salvador in half. And one side of El Salvador will have money and one side won't have money. Now you're laughing at that because yeah, anyone who knows like anything. Solomon splitting the baby in half. <laughs> or, you know, the carving up of, of Africa. It's just, it makes no sense whatsoever, but it was taken seriously. Yeah. Well, thank you for that uh, description. I'm, you know, learning more and more about uh, the dangers and toxicity and, and the mining for gold. I'm sure it's something similar for diamonds when we get go down that road. Also, uh, <clears throat> I, I want to go to, it is this issue of the uh, toxic pollution of the water and water being essential, as John says, to all of us. We can't live more than a few days without it. That, that water was at stake here 
and the dangers coming to the water from the mining opened up the possibility for reaching out to some unlikely allies. And you talk in the book, but you know, how we know how important the Catholic Church is in Central America. And the archbishop, who was very conservative in El Salvador, uh, was kind of trying to avoid getting mixed up in all of this until there was a meeting and someone mentioned Sinai. <laughs> and uh, tell us the story of how the science and the threat to the water helped to bring that in. And more generally, how you reached out and uh, and your whole team to bring in unlikely allies by, you know, by broadening your scope, you got some incredible support in unlikely areas. Sure. Well, this may be the lesson that's most important for the United States, because we also are deeply divided politically. El Salvador had a civil war from 1980 to 1992, where 75,000 people were killed, horrendous divisions between right and left. And yet, if you're fighting a fight like this in El Salvador at that moment, two-thirds of the national legislature was controlled by right-wing parties. So you weren't going to win. Once they decided their goal was not just to kick the mining company out of their community, but they concluded that El Salvador, with its scarce water, its one big river, that it could not, the whole country couldn't have mining, they realized they needed other allies. The story, I mean, you, you told it beautifully, Eleanor. It was, I mean, what was made it even worse. So many... If when you ask many Americans if they know any Salvadoran name, the one they often know is the guy who's now been named a saint by the Pope, uh, Oscar Romero. The Catholic Church got got smart after he was assassinated in 1980 and said, we're only going to bring in conservative archbishops. So this next guy, Science Lacaye was his name, um, was from Opus Dei, this, one of the most conservative <laughs> sects of the Catholic Church. And the water defenders said what I could have just see ourselves sitting in these meetings. They said, don't reach out to that guy. <laughs> He's a pro-business Opus Dei guy. And there were a few intrepid souls at the core of the water defenders who said, look, if we could turn the Catholic Church in this very Catholic country, that would be a game changer. So they tried, and he blew them off and blew them off, and they finally got a meeting. And I've been in meetings like this a lot. You go in and you're telling your story, and the guy's like, you know, looking Can't at his wait email. to get you out of the room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, trying to get you out of the room. Anyway, finally they did mention cyanide, and, and he, he said, oh, my God, why didn't you say that earlier? I have a degree in chemistry. So he knew he then turned and he brought the church with him. Then, you know, there were there were preachers, you know, there were sermons and in, in across the country that helped turn public opinion. And I just want to say overall, politicians left and right. I mean, this is maybe sounding a little cynical. They get up in the morning and they look at the public opinion polls. Uh, they're doing it right now happily on this infrastructure bill and on and on Afghanistan, where the public you know, wanted to end the war and so on. But yes, they're, they're feeling which way the wind's blowing. And um, our friends did commission a poll at, from the University of Central America. Through all this work, it showed over 62% opposed to mining. And so that opened up their mind to thinking, could we possibly win over some people on the far right? And I'll just mention one case. Um, so the far right party is called Arena. It was linked to death squads. Again, people said, don't, you can't reach over there. These, these people killed our relatives. Um, and there was a person from that party on the environment committee. They got to know him. He'd gone to school in the U.S. He learned about the environment from a rich family. But one of his ancestors had actually helped create the U.S. park service a long, long time ago. And he was open to the facts. Name is Johnny Wright Saul. They gave him all the information. They taught him things. And he helped pull one of the right-wing parties uh, to their side. So in the end, the final sort of chapter of the book, you know, they're getting to this, finally, they're getting to the legislature, and there's going to be a vote. And people are scared, because as the environment minister told Robin, um, El Salvador always loses. <laughs> they feel that's their history under the thumb of the United States, of foreign corporations. And yet the water defenders had done their work brilliantly. And on that day, again, unanimous is one of the, the interesting words in this book. The tribunal ruled unanimously against the company. On this day, 
unanimously 70, 14 people didn't vote, but 70 people voted to make El Salvador the first country in the world to ban all metals mining to save its rivers. And that reaching across the aisle and doing it, you know, creatively and courageously and getting no a lot of times before you got a yes was one of the key things that that cemented this victory. And it's helped us rethink our work here in the United States. I mean, we hate Mitch McConnell. They reached out to the equivalent of Mitch McConnell and they found something on which they could agree. And it's not going to happen much. I give credit to Bernie Sanders. He found seven Republicans who would oppose U.S. arms sales to Saudi Arabia and to stop the genocide in, in Yemen. Mm-hmm. If we're more creative um, around that, we, we will win more. And we won't be as pure. I mean, that, there's, there's always that accusation, but, but we will win more. Yeah, I think that's very inspiring and very encouraging. And I, and I hope um, our listeners take that to heart. I, I do strongly believe in reaching out to build as broad a coalition as you can when you're working to pass legislation or make something move. It's like it's worth a try. It may not happen, but it's absolutely worth a try. And you may have some surprising successes. So um, we just have uh, another minute or so left here. Um, First of all, I want you to tell our listeners, how can they learn more about your work? Do you have a website or where do you want people to go to learn more about what you're doing? Yeah, the two groups at the center of this fight, the Institute for Policy Studies, it has a great website, which will tell you more about the fight and the book, and Mining Watch Canada, likewise, both great resources to continue this work. That's great. And then what action, so Robin, did you want to? Yeah, I just wanted to, to say for your listeners who, who know people who aren't English speakers or readers, um, our great news Um, hot off the press news, so to speak, is that there's going to be a Spanish language edition of this book coming out of Mexico City in early 2022. And there is also going to be a Philippine edition because the the company Oceana Gold mines in the Philippines. It mines in North Island, New Zealand. So it's also a, a struggle in New Zealand and closer to home. It's in South Carolina where we've begun doing work with local groups there. Fantastic. And uh, finally, you know, is there some action our listeners can take? We talked about the secret tribunal. We talked about a lot of now the South Carolina, the same mining companies at work there. What can our listeners do about the situation? Yeah, um, put pressure on the U.S. government to get out of this secret tribunal, ICSID, and learn more about this lawsuit that TransCanada is bringing against the United States. Give it publicity, because as Eleanor said, when you shine light on this, bring sunshine to it, it will increase our ability to actually defeat this institution. And for anyone, anyone who wants to get even more involved in, the, in, in this specific work, international allies exist. We've expanded to other countries and other companies and email, well, email John through IPS or me through American University, and we can get you involved as much or as little as you want. Yeah, that's great. And, um, you know, we got water defenders all over the world. I'm sure they'll be inspired and encouraged by what you're doing. And originally when I read the book, I thought, oh, this is like made for television, you know, made for movie. I can just see this is a phenomenal movie coming. And now as we're talking about the work and who's doing it and really, this could be a whole television series. Like we could have, you know, Standing Rock. We can have. The village in El Salvador that got this national uh, bill to stop mining in the whole country. There's like story after story. Robert F. Kennedy has done a lot of work with people defending the rivers in uh, the United States. This could be like an amazing television, like with real stories about what people are doing. So I hope one of our listeners or more is involved in Hollywood. I know at least one who I'm going to be talking with. So if you know anybody in Hollywood who uh, writes scripts for movies and television, by the way, one of them is my cousin. 
So <laughs> I'm going to talk to my cousin about it. But, uh, you know, they should get in touch with you at those websites uh, or get in touch with me and I'll get them in touch with you. I can't wait to see the movie and the TV series. So um, that's all the time we have. It's uh, Robin Broad and John Kavana, co-authors of Water Defenders, a fabulous book. I encourage all you listeners, read Water Defenders, please, and be inspired. Thank you so much for being with us today and for all your important work. Thank you, Eleanor. It's not only been an honor, but it's been great fun. See you at the local farmer's market. <laughs> yes, look Thank forward you. to it. Good luck. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks.